podcast. My name is Rob. Say it like you've done it before. My name is Rob, and welcome to the broadcast. And welcome to this episode of PBS Broadcasting <laughs> Something Boring. <laughs> I'm Rob. And I'm Marty. And welcome to Tradesplaining, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting it asleep. On episode 49, we'll talk about buff zillionaires, why the much maligned insurance industry may finally make you sustainable, and why that hornet on your coke may just be a little worse than you thought. And of course, we'll throw in a few points on listener feedback and sneak in a news roundup and a few jokes. So listen responsibly. Wait, that's the end. That's the end. That's the end. <laughs> Welcome to episode 49. That would be the atomic number of indium. That's not the fastest growing non-alkali metal. It is the softest non-alkali metal that makes up 0.21 parts per million of the Earth's crust and has no biological role. Kind of like this last sentence I just read. It's also an upcoming movie, Indium Jones and the Temple of Non-Sequitur Intros. It's also the world's now the world's most populous nation, it Indium. Is the, it is the square of seven, which is the famous shirt number of a number of Manchester United players. Ronaldo. Yeah, for example, Beckham before him, Eric Cantona. Beckham. Of others. Beckham. I enjoyed him. It was also the year the California gold rush began. And the 1949 was also the year Russia tested its first atomic bomb. You don't need to respond to every point because there's a lot. We'll be here all day. And... and <laughs> Speaking of Russia, which as Sarah Palin can see from her house, Alaska was also the 49th state admitted to the U.S. And I'm running out of fun facts. That was in the 1950s. I'm running out of fun facts about 49. It's the number of times you could subscribe to this broadcast. Podcast. So make sure you catch our next episode coming out very soon. So subscribe. Oh, you can also share it with a friend or a stranger. And you can find us anywhere you get your podcast. As I said, subscribe to all of them. And why not leave a review? And speaking of reviews, I don't know if you can call something a review if it was probably AI generated. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, that is because we had our first scrap with the AI revolution recently. We were disappointed to see that it mainly involves an exponential increase in the number of cold emails that people try to sell you things, but marked or sort of mask it as a podcast review. So Rob, your, your job is safe. We recently got a, uh, a dear Artie and Rob, your podcast really. No, no, it even started off worse than that. It just said, dear Rob. No, no, I said, dear Robert. <laughs> dear Robert. Dear Robert. I've never heard anybody except your mother call you Robert. <laughs> dear Robert, I really liked your podcast intro. You could see it was like just filled in with AI generated, you know, fluff. Like the title of the last episode, he gave us five star reviews on Apple Podcast. He said, our guest. You could just see, see where insert here was. And it was all generated. And he said, oh, by the way, I'm also selling some stuff. Would you care to have a quick chat? It actually kind of made me feel good to read it though it did until i got to the end anyway i don't like being lied to also a pu public service announcement a few canada, canada. <laughs> so i've been told <laughs> did you hear i guess most listeners by now will have heard that last week there was this big puff of smoke that came down from canada and no it's not the legalized cannabis new york looked a little like mars at it, the time it looked like uh, blade runner 2049 did you get any hysterical uh, texts from your friends on Staten Island who now believe in climate change? I, I got a lot. My brother sent me quite a few. He believes in climate change, but he sent me a couple of before and after photos with some choice words for Canadian. But anyway. I blame Justin Trudeau. I blame him too. He's easy to blame too. Anyway, also I, I came across this. This reminds me, this is a callback to Michelle's telling us a couple of episodes ago that uh, Ozempic is like the new in thing. And um, Ozempic butt... 
I'm quoting here, I didn't make it up, uh, might explain why all those squats and hyper machine exercises are not having a desired effect that, that I would like. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, it's increasingly impacting those who are using weight loss medication. And derrieres, if I can say that, are getting apparently saggy and... Um, but this also brings us to the... To without this, any lift. Exactly. And this brings us to this issue of buff billionaires. I mean, I don't think we've seen them f- from from behind. Bezos is the kind of the worst example. He's using the opposite of Ozempic butt he's for using, basically his chest. getting very much bigger. He's and huge. So is this, um, are the two related? You go, you, you know, you go find out. But the thing that really worries me now mm. is after the, uh, you know, the end of the pandemic and so on, the world has fewer billionaires and they're poorer. So it's slipping away from us right now. So I guess they're spending too much time at the gym on leg day instead of making money. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that is a sad turn of events. So billionaires, we're sorry to hear that you know that your your numbers are dwindling. Hang in there. On, on Hang an, in there. This is this. Uh, I, I usually look for things to end this segment on like a high note, mm. but I, this will probably make me at least a bit more depressed. A low note coming. Uh, Jurassic Park was released thirty years ago this week, and I um I officially feel older. Yeah, I mean I'm you, older you than are, you I'm, are. I'm slightly older than Jurassic Park. I don't know how to feel about that. Old. Yeah, and actually I went to a, to a video game place with my daughter, who's old enough to drink, also getting older, and there is a vintage Jurassic Park game where you're shooting those things that are running after you with sharp teeth out of the back of a Jeep. Velociraptor? That thing. Yeah, you did, you did watch it. No, I didn't watch it. You did watch I it watch, I, I, could, I had to look away <laughs> because it's just a reminder of my time catching up with me. Ozempic finds a way. So <laughs> Um, I think that about does it for uh, write us at trades trade.splaining at gmail.com trade.splaining at gmail.com I'm I'm surprised Rob actually remembered because he just usually shows up here and talks I'm going to go get some more bourbon ice (laughs) (laughs) so jumping right into the important news stories this episode. Uh, First one, I guess we'll just take it right from the top. I think many people might start now believing in in climate change uh, when their insurance companies make them pay for it and and their stakes as well. So the large homeowner insurance company in California, State Farm, uh, recently announced that it would stop selling coverage to homeowners. So as they say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is is not there in California. He's not there. He's not going to be there for you. In California, at least. (laughs) That's not just in wildfire zones, but everywhere in the state. It's also said it would stop accepting applications for most new types of insurance policies in the state because of rapidly growing catastrophe exposure. I wonder what they could be talking about. Also, that that comes on top of parts of eastern Kentucky, which were ravaged by storms last year, where the price of flood insurance is set to quadruple. In Louisiana, it's even worse, where the top insurance official says that the market is in crisis and is offering millions of dollars, not in tax subsidies, but in subsidies to try to draw insurers to the state. Um, And this comes also on top of the fact that the price of beef continues to go up due to drought and high costs. I mean, insert where the beef jokes here. Uh, (laughs) COVID has led to a negative impact on supply, followed by a lack of workers post-COVID. And then with inflation and climate considerations are now pushing prices up even higher. So it remains to be seen if this will, this will change habits in the long term, although experience says yes. So consumers and, and actually restaurants will maybe start putting new things on the menu like ribeye lentil or something. It's cheaper. Yeah. And then meanwhile in Europe, this comes at the same time, contrasting fortunes in a way, they have in fact too much solar generated power, which could infect future investment over the short and the medium term, and negatively impact countries 
carbon neutral power generation goals. So these increasing price swings and the lower negative interest rates. So this is where companies are actually paying consumers, people who have these solar panels on their homes during these peak production periods can actually put this sort of new investment at risk. So it might actually hinder uh, countries like Germany and the Netherlands sort of climate goals for 2030 and 2050, whereby they want to be carbon neutral. Um, so actually, yeah, there's too much sun. In there's too much sun in the Netherlands, folks. This is a very underreported situation. Also, they're underwater, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think you're you're right. And these are the little pressures we're starting to see that could actually change economic incentives around sustainability. So if you can't insure your boat, you can't insure your home, you can rebuild after your business is uh, destroyed then you're going to start to think differently about how you equip the business, how you set it up. I think it's the same with um, these little, well, little, but but continuing trends around things like beef. So it's simply not economic to raise beef anymore, even though in the U.S. these prices are not capturing the full economic cost of using land, for instance. It's already changing the way ranchers, the way processors are working, slowly pushing prices up. It's going to push relative prices up. We've seen this happening, I mean, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. When we see prices go up, people change behavior. Now, the issue of, you know, is there a little bit too much solar, a little too little solar? How many, you know, windmills are there going to be in these kinds of things? I think this is more of, you know, a little bit of back and forth as the as the market develops. I don't really think that that's a significant issue relative to relative to the fact price of, of renewable energy is going down. Yeah, I think as a whole, that's true. But I think for me, the reason this, that news story in particular was interesting among the others was that this highlights, as a card-carrying millennial, um, it highlights for me sort of the unique issues societies now are facing around the world. It's interesting also this kind of tipping point that can that can happen. So for instance, we see the you know, insurance rates, we see beef going up a bit. We see actually this kind of Martian you know, air around New York, could some of these things change, you know, could, could some of these things uh, tip people's view of what they should be spending money on, what they should be doing? We, we, we don't really know yet. I think it's going to start accumulating. Yeah. I Maybe. mean, wh- when Maybe. Canada is the source of your pollution, I think something's different. We got a problem. <laughs> it's very different. Once the Canadians are the problem, you know, geez, something's really different here. Maybe Elon was right. We should just colonize Mars. I think we should put giga in front of everything. Like if I have a snack, I should call it a giga snack. Gig- but Elon does. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm going to take a giga coffee break right now. Speaking of a giga news story, keeping up on the positive news front. So the other couple of bits we wanted to, we thought were interesting to highlight was the fact that demographic pressures and, and artificial intelligence have been in the news quite a bit recently. And it seems to be happening again at the same time, like uh, we talked about just now with amongst many other issues happening seemingly at the same time. So aging populations are already hitting government's credit rating. So this is according to a number of ratings agencies. Countries in, in Southeast Asia, like Korea, Japan, and others, they're sort of, in the medium term, things are not looking good. Um, one quote that I found, I think it was in the FT, was actually quite interesting. Demographics have always been sort of a, a long-term issue, but now the long-term eventually at some point becomes a, a short-term the now. <laughs> yeah, issue. Yeah, exactly. And so we're seeing that now with aging populations. Also, Germany's population almost overnight seems to have just been sort of a red light flashing that it's actually aging at one of the fastest rates in the world. And so the issue is, will there be enough people to fill in the, the, the empty job sort of openings that are existing? And then, you know, what kind of effect does this have on economic growth and so on and so forth? On the flip side, there are countries like India. There's an issue where there are too few jobs and too many workers. So India, which has now surpassed China as the fastest growing country in the world, 
also the, the most populous. The concern is that there won't be enough jobs to support this huge growing youth population. So it, if you look at the trend lines, the unemployment rate among youths in India for the past 10, 15 years has been going steadily down. It's literally just a straight line up, I should say, excuse me. And uh, it poses serious questions. I think India is going to be asked tough questions in the next couple of years. How is it going to build on sort of labor-intensive industries, not just sort of the um, IT business process outsourcing types of jobs, which, funnily enough, AI is going to be foreseen to, to take away many of those. So how they sort of fill that gap will be interesting to see. We know what happens when youth are generally unemployed. Um and then bringing it back to Europe, politicians in Switzerland want to relax the law limiting number of foreign workers. So if you go to school in Switzerland, they've passed a law now allowing more students who go to school in Switzerland to then be allowed to work here because there is a surplus of, of uh, skilled labor uh, that positions that need to be filled in Switzerland. This is one way they're looking to um, to fill that gap as well. So there, generally there are, there's a lot of these sort of downward pressures, as, as, as you like to say, Rob. <laughs> on on people's labor prospects. The, the last one that I, that was, I thought was, I don't know if it's funny, if maybe it's the macabre of me, but in China, AI-generated fashion models are hugely popular. Also sexist, but they're in, in great demand. So they're actually replacing humans um, on like, you know, your H&M. So we're going to be exploiting human, the actual literally human models less. But through AI, we're going to be making ourselves feel worse about ourselves. And now that reinforcing male stereotypes of literally the male gaze of what AI-generated models look like so yeah. in terms of their but measurements. But then mo most of like the that. male gaze will also be generated by AI, so it's not so much of an issue. So, like, our, uh, this is getting <laughs> philosophical. <laughs> and <laughs> It's starting to get very circular. I think, I, think that, I, I think the point that you make, so demographics are becoming a thing. It's like 1913 again. Are we growing... But in that case, it was who's going to grow fast enough, demographics or destiny and so on. Now it's who's shrinking fast. And the, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the, the bad distribution, let's say in quotes, of human labor. So we don't, we, it's not in the right place. Switzerland is, is begging for labor. The U.S. even continues to have a very hot labor market for, for no reason that anybody can really understand. That the, the Chinese also are about to hit a wall. So there, they're automating jobs. AI is was the only a reference. To, was that like a bad reference to the Great Wall of China? The Great Wall of demographics. <laughs> that's all around China. So the, the, in, in these countries, we're automating jobs because we don't have enough folks to do them. Uh, whereas in places like uh, there are not enough, not enough good jobs. We know that, and there are a few things coming. Manufacturing does seem to be coming, but is it enough? Is it going to be fast enough? And then we also have places like Africa, which seem to be you know have a lot to do with our demographic future as a, as a planet. Are the jobs going to be going there? Uh, is is AI going to get there? You know, first. So I think it, it, it's strange again to be talking about demographics. It's not something we really talked about since since I was in graduate school. In trade, we didn't really think these, in these terms. It was it, was it an assumption, a bad economist assumption that sort of populations would continue to steadily increase. People would just make more and more babies, or is just something that was overlooked? It was always, well, you know, in the, in the model, it's, it's always kind of a, it's a resource. So there's land, there's capital, there's labor. And it wasn't really thought about the distribution of labor. I mean, of course, yeah, so I'm simplifying tremendously. So capital moves fast, you know, land doesn't move at all, and people move inefficiently. And we see how inefficiently they move compared to, to other resources now. And that's, it's now on people's minds. It's now on people's minds, especially because, I guess, because of the change in China, but also Europe. And 
I don't think the U, you know the U.S. based on you know public health and other responses and, and just visually is not doing that great either. Hey, you know? the past is not a good predictor of the future. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's going to be worse. Nassim Taleb said that. Okay, <laughs> go go read uh, Black Swan. Chris Miller is the author of Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology, A Geopolitical History of the Computer Chip. He has previously also written three other books on Russia. He currently serves as the Associate Professor of International History at Tufts University, where his research focuses on technology, geopolitics, economics, international affairs, and Russia. He's previously also worked at Yale University, a lecturer at the New Economic School in Moscow, a visiting researcher at the Carnegie Moscow Center, the Brookings Institute, and as a fellow at the German Marshall Fund's Transatlantic Academy. He received his PhD and master's from Yale University and his bachelor's in history from Harvard University. For more information, you can find that more at www.christophermiller.net. So, Chris, thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you finally join us. And why don't you start off by telling us a little about yourself? How did you end up where you are now writing books that are the topic uh, du jour? Well, I'm a historian of, of Russia by training. I've written several books previously on different aspects of Russian economic history and Russian politics. And I started getting involved with semiconductors some time ago when I began what I thought would be a book on the evolution of defense technology during the Cold War. I want to understand why was it that in the early Cold War, the Soviets could keep up with the key defense technologies, atomic weapons, long-range delivery systems, whereas by the end of the Cold War, they'd fallen far behind in military technology, which seemed like a sphere they ought to do pretty well, given they had large capital investment, they had lots of smart scientists, scientists who actually won Nobel Prizes and things like semiconductor physics. And it, I, I came to realize that the key differentiating factor between Western militaries and especially the U.S. military and the Soviet military was semiconductors and the ability to apply computing power that chips enabled to all sorts of defense systems. And I was doing that research around 2015, 2016, just as companies like Huawei and DTE were making the news, just as the U.S. was itself realizing the extent to which all of China's leading tech companies were dependent on a really complex supply chain of semiconductors that intersected with uh, the United States. And, and so I was watching that develop, at first not really realizing the linkage between my expertise in Russian history and, and the news headlines. But I, I, I came to actually to, to write this book largely driven by the fact that I realized or came to learn that one of China's biggest imports is semiconductors. And in fact, China spends as much money importing chips as it spends importing oil most years, which to me, didn't really fit with my, at the time, quite simplistic view of how globalization worked. And putting those different pieces together, the role of chips in military power, the role of chips absolutely at the center of the, the deep network of manufacturing supply chains in East Asia, and then the role of computing power in US-China competition. Uh, it seemed to me that there was actually a, a need for a book that puts semiconductors at the center of all of these key trends, and that's where chip war emerged from. Excellent. So having given us the context, and as a historian by trade, as you said, is the situation that we find ourselves in the world that is already the concentration of microchips, has, is that inevitable? Was, is it always the case that with certain, whether that's oil or certain other industries, that things naturally led to a concentration or, or are microchips different in that sense? So I, I think chips are, are different in many ways than most other types of manufactured goods because of the scale of the concentration. If you look at the chip industry, almost every segment of the manufacturing process from the start of the supply chain all the way down to the end 
involves just a couple of companies capable of producing at the cutting edge. And in many segments of the supply chain, there's just one company that has really the lion's share of production and the most advanced capabilities. And and that's more true in the chip industry than most other industries for two reasons. First is the amount of capital expenditure needed to build cutting edge manufacturing facilities is huge and unprecedented. Each new chip making facility built at the cutting edge is the most expensive factory in human history. And so this is not an industry that is kind to startups or new entrants because the capital cost of just being a player is enormous. And the, the second factor is the complexity in um, because there's no good we've produced as humans that's more complex than advanced semiconductor. Uh, if you go to the Apple store and buy a new iPhone, just the primary chip on that iPhone, and there are dozens of semiconductors, will have around 15 or 20 billion transistors carved into it, each one of which are roughly the size of a coronavirus. And so no other type of manufacturing comes remotely close. I mean, cars are simple to produce in comparison to the level of precision involved in semiconductors. And to produce that precision requires all sorts of unique knowledge, expertise, and tacit know-how that's built up inside of firms. It is very, very difficult for outsiders to, to learn to replicate. Now, which is why in many segments of the chip industry, you actually have uh, firms that have been in their market position for years, if not decades, because it's hard for outside firms to learn the manufacturing processes that can be scaled while retaining that level of precision. And just because the, the the, the margin for error is much smaller in the chip industry than any other type of manufacturing. The barriers to entry are much higher. So I guess that leads nicely to the next point, and that is the CHIPS Act. So, I mean, we're not dad jokes aside, we'd like to know as a historian, we've seen the U.S. obviously and its, its allies moving towards subsidizing many of the things that they think will be important for this green transition, and CHIPS obviously are, are the big one. But as a historian, are there any parallels where legislation like the CHIPS Act and other industries has, has worked? Well, I think on, on, on working, there's, there's several different ways you can define working and several different categories in which you can assess the, the CHIPS Act. I think you know, it's, it's certainly clear that government has been a key driver of advances in semiconductors. The, the, for the first decade in which semiconductor existed, the U.S. military was the primary buyer of chips. Both the two companies that invented integrated circuits were largely funded by government contracts. And even today, if you look at cutting-edge research in semiconductors, the U.S. military and DARPA, the Defense Department's Advanced Projects Research Agency, is really at the center of, of funding long-run research and has been for, for a long time. So th there's been a really deep relationship between government, especially the U.S. military, and technological advances in the chip industry. Now, technological advances don't necessarily create viable businesses. And it's critical to understand that differential. So I, I'm, I'm certainly not someone who believes that government is going to succeed in predicting market demand or, or, or scaling businesses as, as successfully as the private sector. But I, I think only you know, really supreme ideology can lead you to think that government can't play a role in the chip industry because it has repeatedly. But I think it's also the case that we ought to be really cautious in, in the ways in which governments do play a role. It's 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 just a fact that governments have been a driver of um, of R and D and of technological advancements, but it's also a fact that today ninety eight percent of chips sold go to civilian use cases. Governments are a small buyer of chips, and so success in the chip industry is ninety eight percent about selling to civilian markets. And companies are going to do that better than governments. If you ask about the, the goals of the Chips Act, I think this is really important. I think that the key goal of the Chips Act is and is as an insurance policy vis a vis crisis in Taiwan Straits and. The, U the U.S. government is a little bit uncomfortable talking about this openly 
So you do get some mixed messages in public from U.S. government officials, but in private, you don't get as mixed messages. It's 100% clear that fears about China's intentions vis-a-vis Taiwan have increased dramatically over the past five years. And that's coincided with the realization among many political leaders about the entire economy's reliance on chips. And so I think if you want to understand why the CHIPS Act was passed, you can't understand it unless you put China's increasing threats to Taiwan at the absolute center of your analysis. And from that, in that context, the, the primary goal of the CHIPS Act is to reduce the concentration of chip making. And the U.S. is going to do that by supporting chip making in the U.S. Japan is doing that by supporting chip making in Japan. Europe, in its own kind of complex way, is doing that by supporting chip making in Europe. But I think the, the key driver, at least of the U.S. and Japanese version to Europe is much more complex, is a, is a, is a, a change in the, the political elite's estimation of the risk of war in the Taiwan Straits. I know you're, you're, an, you're a historian by trade, not necessarily an economist, but I think it's clear the way that we talk about trade, whether that's in the U.S. and Europe and, and all over the world, has kind of shifted. So the way we think about it, generally speaking. Now, having given us this, all this context about the importance of microchips, particularly in the context of these geopolitical priorities going on in Asia and how the Biden administration is being, a, I guess you could say, a continuation of, of what Trump administration era policies were, does history, that, I would assume that that doesn't lead us to a great place. Does history offer any lessons? Can you lighten my stress or anxiety? Does history give us any lessons, potential hopeful outcomes? Well, I mean, I, I think the, the hopeful outcome is that we've, we retain peace in the Taiwan Straits as we have since 1949 due to deterrence working. I mean, the, the reason that Chinese leaders haven't really attacked Taiwan since the 1950s and didn't really succeed in attacking Taiwan before then is because the U.S. deterred them militarily. Uh, and the key change in the Taiwan Straits today is that unlike for the past 50 years, when if there was a war, everyone knows who would win. Today in the Taiwan Straits, if there were war, nobody knows who would win. And that's true of U.S. policymakers, and it's true of Chinese policymakers. And it, it opens doubt in the region, and I think also in Beijing, about what would happen if there were military escalation. And insofar as the answer is unclear, the prospect that China might decide, or uh, after a series of unpredictable steps in a crisis, might conclude that its best option is to escalate, has become more plausible. Now, I think the whole outcome is just that deterrence is reestablished, that it, uh, that it continues to function. But I think... We shouldn't naively assume that trade produces peace because history provides no evidence that that's true. And the 20th century, as well as 2022, provide lots of evidence that that's false. Have you met anybody in Geneva then? Geneva then is a place to, I think, you know, uh, look historically at the track record because, of course, Geneva is the site of multiple iterations of, of multilateral projects based on that notion. And, and I wish it were true. And I like the philosophers who think it is true, but it's not true. Well, no comment. I'm not going to, uh, for fear of uh, people picketing outside my house uh, in the future, I will not save, uh, I will save, save my response to that. But I think it's a super interesting point. So I guess if we can just tie this all in. So you started your work as a historian on focusing on the Soviet Union and let's just say Russia for, for all intents and purposes. Now, if we end the interview on that or end these questions on that, how, what do you see as the long-term result of the the war that we see, the trade war, if you will, between Russia and, and the West, generally speaking. Is there, 
Does history offer any lessons there? I know you don't, you can't predict the future, obviously, but is there anything you've seen in, in your past, having studied Russia and, and the Soviet Union, that could give you an idea of where uh, this may go? Because it seems like the situation in Russia will only get worse and worse the longer this trade war goes on, unless, save for them finding some kind of moonshot, it seems like it'll only get worse and harder for them economically. That doesn't obviously portend well, at least in my opinion, historically, but it is that the right way to look at it, or is there some kind of silver lining? Is there a way out of this? You know, I, I think the, the economic aspects of the of the Russia-Ukraine war are are interesting in, in two ways. One is as a reminder, which again we see repeatedly historically, is that during wartime, when there are blockades and sanctions imposed, there's also lots of trade that happens even between adversarial powers. That was true in World War One. That was true in World War Two. And, and neutral countries become sites of trade diversion and even openly acknowledged trade diversion. And so if you look, for example, at the West's effort to impose an oil price cap on, on Russian oil exports, you know that, that fits exactly with the historical track record of countries trying to harm their adversary, but also not harm themselves and allowing some amount of trade to continue as a result of that. I think what's, what's striking in the Russian case is that Russian imports have almost recovered to their pre-war trend, largely due to this type of trade uh, diversion. Russian oil exports in volume terms are are hardly changed since before the war. And so in a lot of ways, I think the West has actually, after starting the war, trying to lean heavily on economic tools, and especially Europe, in part because Europe, I think, is less experienced with sanctions. A lot of the really dramatic escalations came from Europe, seizing of Russia's foreign exchange reserves, the effort by Europe to impose a, an oil embargo, which was then basically rolled back via the, the price cap. And now I think the West is is shifting towards a much more targeted strategy of trying to target high-tech products that might end up in the Russian military. But actually, most Western effort now is going to arming Ukraine because the Ukrainians have outperformed the battlefield. Russia has underperformed. And so the West now thinks it's it's most likely to achieve most of its aims on the battlefield rather than via economic tools. And I think that's already begun to lead to a bit of a reassessment both in the US and in Europe about what it means for deterring China. Because I think two years ago, you could have found a lot of people who would have said, well, you know, China's not going to escalate in, in the Pacific region because it knows that the West will impose some sanctions. I think the West has begun to realize that actually it's not it's not going to impose sanctions. Sanctions would be just as costly to the West as it would to China. And so as a result, you've got to lean more heavily on military means. And if you look at the rearmament underway, I mean, you see it in Europe, you see it in the US, you really see it in Japan, doubling defense spending as a share of GDP and ostensibly pacifist country buying missile systems specifically designed to reach deep into China. And that shows you how security policymakers are really changing the way they think. And it's driven largely by the Russia-Ukraine war. And in terms of Russia, you know, I think you're right that there's not much, not much good news we should expect from Russia in the long run. The, the ways trade has changed, the way Russia has increased state control over its economy, and the ways that Russia's lost a million of its most talented workers is really all negative for Russia in the long run. But Russia has showed us over the past uh, 18 months that, again, uh, in line with historical trend, Russian leaders and to some extent the Russian people are willing to take very negative economic outcomes in pursuit of their geopolitical goals. Mm. I, I think that I had asked you to reduce my anxiety levels, but the, in fact, the, that answer just did the opposite. <laughs> On that happy note, the second, the last part of the interview, we usually have listeners mail in, mail in, email in their questions that they'd like us to ask guests. So I'm assuming you've, you've listened to the podcast before, so you kind of know what to expect. 
I am slightly, uh, I'm not sure, but I think Rob mailed in probably a bunch of these under a different alias because Honey Badger, there are a lot of references to Wisconsin and things like this. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. So the first thing we, we'd, we'd like to know is, is it true that since you wrote this book on, on the chip war that there's a new drinking game where you have to do a shot every time somebody says chips are the new oil, <laughs> either in a speech or in you a know, book? <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> you know, that, that phrase actually emerged in the 1980s and it's been resuscitated recently. So if it's a drinking game, it's not a new one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, speaking of uh, resuscitated, so in the 90s, the Clinton and his economic advisors said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but they, it's a real quote. They said that they didn't care whether we made, we as in the US, made potato chips or computer chips. So I guess the question, this, this Rob probably wants to know, how many transistors can you fit on a potato chip? <laughs> Well, you know, the, the problem is that we, we can manipulate silicon at basically the atomic level and our, our ability to manipulate potato chips is far less, less advanced, so far fewer. So Clinton, it was, he had a point. <laughs> potato chips are quite hard to produce. <laughs> so this, this last one might get us in, in trouble with the listeners in, in the New England area, but we have to ask it as a, as a New Yorker. One, are you from New England? Before no, I from Chicago this? originally. Oh, okay, even, okay, so Rob is actually going to love you because he's from Wisconsin, and I'm glad he wasn't here for this because he's got some choice words for Illinois. So how long since after you arrived at Tufts did it take you to stop laughing at the Boston accent, <laughs> especially as a Midwesterner? Still hasn't happened. <laughs> also, Rob wanted to know why he didn't get into Tufts. He says he boycotted the interview. No, uh, no comment. I have, I have no control over admissions decisions. I'm sure it was an error. Okay. And I guess lastly, this is the most important one, especially by Rob's account. We usually ask our guests, as this is an expat-driven podcast, you're not an expat, you're an American-based, well, you're kind of an expat since you're in New England as a Midwesterner. But we usually ask our guests what their favorite kebab in Geneva is, which is Switzerland's unofficial, official national dish. And if not kebabs, what is your favorite microchip <laughs> specifically? Well, I've, I've, Are you an AMD guy, <laughs> NVIDIA? <laughs> I've only spent a bit of time in Geneva, not enough to develop a, a particularly refined taste in kebabs, but I can only hope I have the opportunity to in in, in the future. Well, if, if you're ever here, we'll be sure to take you to Rob's favorite, Alamir. <laughs> Hint, it's not his favorite, but we're going to take you anyway. So I appreciate your, your candor in, in all of this. I'm sure these were not, these are pretty hard-hitting questions, particularly the second half. So I appreciate you being a, a good sport. Chris, before we go, where can people go to find more of, of the work you're doing? Um, or do we just say Amazon? Amazon is probably the best place. I also have a website, ChristopherMiller.net, where I post articles that I've written. Excellent. Chris, thanks once again for joining us on the podcast. It's been it's been great talking and I hope to have you on again. Maybe meet in person if you ever make that kebab run. Uh, here that sounds Geneva. great. Thank you for having me. Okay, that brings us to the next segment already this week in local news. You wouldn't believe it was true unless you lived in Geneva or anywhere else. But today, it's a lot about Geneva. So we, we have a disturbing news. The Geneva has become the Swiss capital of the Asian hornet. Apparently, this hornet can eat 11 kilograms of insects a year. Like, what kind of insects is it eating? Well-fed ones. I guess, yeah, exactly. Nutritious wrong kind. Nutritious it's, it, Apparently, they're hiding out in urban areas. How can you recognize them? Because apparently, and according, this is according, I'm reading from the, 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 the article here. So according to the expert, Asian hornets are more black than yellow, whereas European hornet is more yellow than black. Luckily, the, they are not very aggressive, according to the experts cited here in the article, and they rarely sting humans. So when it's on my Coke, 
How can I tell it's the Asian? And, and is the Asian worse than the European? Because it sounds a little bit edgy to me. If I don't, I remember I'm not sure I like this. If I remember correctly, the European horn is pretty aggressive. I had a couple in my house once a couple of years ago. They wear, uh, they're the ones that wear the tight pants? Yeah. <laughs> The, the 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 pink pants. They're they're they they sound Danish. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and they eat a lot of salmon. Only espresso, right? Not the big coffees. And, no, no, yeah, no, yeah. No. Okay. It's so, like my dad when he first came to my apartment. I was like, "Oh, you want a coffee, Dad?" He's like, you "A big one or a smaller one?" And I gave him the. He said, "Big one." I gave him the big one. He's like, he wanted twice, three times that size. He wants a gallon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So these. So when you. So folks, when you're out, I mean, obviously, this is a dangerous invading insect. If you see. A hornet. Run. That's wearing tight pants. Do that's it. drinking an espresso, a small one, even a ristretto, that it seems to be able to carry off pastel colors and so on. This is a European hornet. You're describing Artie. Describing Artie. <laughs> this is not dangerous. This, is, this, this hornet's fine. <laughs> and he's wearing an Omega. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple of other stories we're following, uh, which, we, which we do, and I know that you guys rely on us for this. Where else would they get this news? They wouldn't get it. They really wouldn't get it. So we talked about that uh, Geneva was building a greenway where they could be, you know, bicycles, uh, mobilité douce, people walking, baby carriages and so on. But to do so, they would have to cut trees. Oh, no. And does this make sense? A greenway where you cut trees? I don't know. Dead on arrival. So, of course, we were shocked. And after a year, they've, uh, they've, they've thought about it. And they had to balance. They had to balance environmental mobility douce which is just basically non-motorized mobility you're speaking to me french like i speak so they had to balance uh, bicycles and tram and 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 uh, you know bicycles and people walking and people running and so on with the issue of preserving the trees and we know trees are important in this town so they did find a balance they will not be cutting any trees for the greenway folks so when that is put in place and it's probably going to be 15 years from now <laughs> you can go out there and push your baby for instance Artie. You can push your future kids on the greenway, and your heart can be happy. How is that possible with all the trottinettes running around? And by trottinette, we mean those little razor scooters. That no, those like, are not allowed. Those are not allowed. We cut those. We cut those fast. So we cut trees. <laughs> so, folks, I think this is uh, this is this is you know we see the two the two sides of Geneva. One, these invading hornets, eleven kilograms of insects, and so on. On the other side, we see a good balance between cutting trees and creating a greenway. And these are the kinds of issues that are really challenging. I sort of lost my interest after the bee story. The, they're called hornets, but yeah. The hornet, you know what I mean. Well, the, bee, the bees are the victim here. So that's it, folks. We'll keep an eye on the wires and make sure we bring you all the up-to-date Geneva tree news. And as always, by we, Rob's means he. Me. That's my only segment. Artie does all the hard news. Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 49, brought to you by Climate Shocks insurance payouts or not payouts and of course artificial intelligence my favorite we also want to thank our executive producer Michelle Olguina thanks Michelle and Valentina Saponara thanks Valentina this is my segment for highlighting the vibe shift as well as helping you produce this and every TS episode so please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast smash that button I just I put my finger in your face if you don't if you haven't done so already <laughs> to make sure you catch our next episode coming out very soon. Where very, do very find, soon. Where do we find these podcasts, Hardy? You find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get Pretty your much anywhere. So don't forget also to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
Better you than can, cats. And you can also find us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at trade.splaining or email us your questions, comments the old-fashioned way at trade.splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's trade.splaining at gmail.com. And ChatGPT can help you write that email, folks. The cold email which asks us for money. And remember, folks... It's the other way around. We ask you for money. <laughs> We're going to be asking you for money. <laughs> and remember, folks... Listen, listen responsibly. responsibly.